Would there be light, right? Yes, quite bright. We got some new lights in here. I uh, appreciate Roy coordinating, putting those up. Uh, it's a big help for athletic events, but uh, they do come on instantly versus the slow fade up we had before. And so, yeah, a little shock to your, pu- your pupils. Um, have you ever come across uh, things in life that just don't seem compatible with one another? Maybe these signs will jar your memory uh, of maybe a time where you just like, okay, uh, I don't think I can do that and that at the same time, or that doesn't seem to be compatible with one another. Uh, just you know, let that uh, tease your mind for a second. Uh, Stephen Whitaker, I can tell he was like zoned in on that. Was it Steve? No, sorry, that wasn't Stephen. That's somebody else. Sorry. But anyway, uh, uh, Stephen, where is Stephen? Is he here? Okay, I, I thought I saw you earlier. Sorry, hold out Stephen there. Sorry, Stephen. Um, if, um, but if, if you ever come across something that just puzzles your mind, so since it's Family Worship Sunday, I need a kid to get, come and help me real quick here. Um, all right, um, Emerson, come here. All right, so this is going to take some intelligence and maybe some athletic ability, okay? You have both? You possess both of those qualities? Okay. All right, so here's what I need you to do. I need you to fold your arms and raise your hand at the same time. All right, good try. All right, I need you to jump as high in the air as you can without letting your feet leave the ground. Okay, ready? Go. Okay. All right, let's give you one more. I need you to scream. You don't scream, do you? I need you to scream as loud as you can, but you can't open your mouth, okay? <laughs> okay. Good effort, good effort. All right. So now i got a question for you, okay? Is it possible to have both peace and war at the same time? Peace and war at the same time. Maybe, maybe not. You're not sure about that one, right? That's what we're going to talk about today from our, our scripture, okay? We're going to see, can you have peace and war at the same time? So when you go home, and you're going to know the answer to that, okay, if you pay attention, all right? Give, give her a hand. Appreciate her help there. So the life of a disciple, is it a life of joy and peace, or is it a life of war? And are those there, Stephen? See, I, I know I saw you, man. You tricked me for a second. Um, um, is, is it a life of, of peace or is it a life of war? And can both of those coexist at the same time? Let me give you some scriptures to think about because this is important. We tell people, come to Jesus and you'll find great peace, right? And maybe some of you grew up in a tradition like that where it was come to Jesus and he's going to give you all this stuff, but you were never told that then on the flip side that coming to Jesus involves a great deal of war and personal sacrifice as well. And so you aren't sure, is it peace or is it war? Listen to these verses, Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I have come, this is Jesus talking, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. But yet in John 14, 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Contradiction? Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's pretty intense, right? And then Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'm going to give you rest. And then from today's text, Matthew, or I'm sorry, Mark 9, 47, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. But he finishes off the passage by saying, be at peace with one another. Tear that eye out, but be at peace, right? 
seems incompatible. So how do these fit together? I think this is an important question for us to answer today because not only in our own lives should our life be, is it just lay back in the easy chair and let grace do its work? Or is it like effort and trying and straining and working in warfare? Which one is it? Which one is it? So let's pray and we'll look at passage from Mark chapter 9. We're in verses 38 through 50, a very tough passage today. Let's, let's look at this after we pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that gives us truth, it gives us life, it gives us your wisdom. And Father God, may we take it in today and learn how to better be your disciple. Father God, I pray that you will help us to place our efforts and our warring in the right direction and not in the wrong direction as we'll see exposed from this passage today. God, I pray for the children in here that today might be an opportunity for them to take one step closer to being more passionate about following you and that they'll be a passionate follower of you for the rest of their life, God. Pray for their parents, give them wisdom as they lead and guide them. And even as we take communion today together, God, help them to use this as, an, as a time to help point them to the cross and to Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So if you were here last week, or even if you weren't, we finished up the section talking about how that the 12 disciples were actually fighting and warring among themselves about who was the greatest. Verse 34 of, of Mark chapter 9, where they kept silent for they had been arguing on, on the, along the way as they walked with Jesus about who was the greatest. And so these guys were obviously very competitive, and I mentioned last week that their lifelong models, who they looked at for spiritual authority and their spiritual role models, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these people were all about self-glorification and Jesus he really really sets them straight in this area because we know that competition warfare should never exist among Christian community all right that we know that and Jesus points that out there can't be this competitive pushing yourself getting ahead trying to be better getting more attention I want to be the focal point I want to put me in the spotlight that attitude does nothing but destroy a community and Jesus points this out to his disciples and says, look, this attitude is a recipe for the wrong kind of war, not the war that you should be fighting. And Paul talks a lot about this in 1 Corinthians. We went through the book of 1 Corinthians. And Paul talked a great deal to this church that was fighting and battling among each other over who had the best spiritual gifts of all things, right? They were arguing and fighting about spiritual matters. And Paul says, this shouldn't be the case. You should be of the same mind, of the same heart. You need to be working together should be, the, should be your purpose. You're an embarrassment to God's name and to his kingdom when you conduct yourself in this matter. And so when people from the outside look into a church, and we know many churches maybe come to mind in our community uh, that have broken apart over time over the most trivial and, and, and crazy of things. And the unbelieving community probably scratches their head, looks at us and say, really, Christians, like you're supposed to be loving and you're supposed to be in unity, and that's so much of what the Bible is about, yet you can't do that among yourselves. Yeah, I want some of that, right? And so Jesus sets the disciples straight. You can't have this attitude of wanting to push yourself ahead. And in fact, he brings a little child up to his lap as a perfect illustration. And he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so the point Jesus was making was this, and kind of like the guy in the G-Kids video, 
when we encounter someone else, we encounter someone else who not only may contain the image of God, but as a Christian, they do contain God, that the Holy Spirit resides in them. That Jesus says that when a believer comes to you, he says, Jesus, I come to you in that person. I reside in my children, and how you treat another person, another believer, is how you treat me. And we don't think of that very often, do we? We don't think about how that maybe the person I'm having this conflict with, that I should treat them the way I would treat Jesus in this conflict. And even if the person isn't a believer, they still, as the video pointed out, have the image of God. They, 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 they display the image of God within them at some level. And so there should be a respect there. And so now we get to close to our text here that Jesus, as he's saying this in verse 37, he says, And whoever receives such a one in my name receives me. And it makes me think that maybe when John heard Jesus say, Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me, it reminds him of an event that recently happened and that he wanted to ask Jesus and take this time to ask Jesus a question about other people who were doing things in Jesus' name. Look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And so John here, he's asking, okay, Jesus, all right, you've, you've just told us we shouldn't be at war with one another, all right? This is not who we should be at war with, but what about these people that are outside of our club, outside of our group, outside of our little circle who are out there doing stuff in your name, but they're not like part of our inner circle here? Should we be against them? Should we stop them? Should we put an end to that? And so the problem was that he, John had a very, very small view of what the kingdom of God would look like. And look what Jesus responds in verse 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. And so he says, these people out here who are doing things in my name, they're not against us, they're for us. Yet how can we as a Christian community and as a community of Christians throughout this nation and throughout this world, how can we be so eager to fight among other Christians? How can we so quickly attack people just because they deviate in one small regard or maybe a minimal small thing from our theology? There's so much of that that happens in the Christian world, in the church world. And unfortunately, most of the times our default is to look at people because they're not of our, our stripe, our flavor, that they're, the not, they're not with us, they're against us. And I think Jesus brings out a very important per point to these disciples who are going to begin to change the world through their message that there's not always going to be complete and perfect harmony, and there's not going to be always complete what you might view as unity among the church on every single thing, and these are not people who necessarily are against you. And he's not only saying this is not just foolish to be this way, but it's, it's actually sinful to be this way. But on the other side of the spectrum, we need to be aware, and we know that there are differences in denominations, there's differences in churches, for oftentimes for good reasons, we just need the wisdom and the discernment to understand whether those are essential items or if they're non-essential items. Because this world, the way the world thinks on this stuff is, you know, just as long as people are sincere about their beliefs, or they're sincere in what they think, then they're good people, you know, they're, they're okay. 
And that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is not saying just because somebody holds to something that's not biblical, but they really believe it and they're passionate and they're, they're really good moral people that they're, they're okay. They're, that's not who Jesus is saying is with us, not against us. And so there definitely is ultimate truth, and it's extremely dangerous when people want to deny that there's absolute ultimate truth. Here at Grace, if you've gone through our membership class, go to the bullseye. Yeah, we use this, this little doctrinal categories and this bullseye. And uh, Daniel does a great job in the membership class to kind of talk about that and talk about how that we don't um, divide, we don't have hostility to our people just because they don't agree with us in every single area. And in this church today, there are people who may have slightly different opinions and beliefs on things that are non critical, non-essential, doctrinal areas. But when you want to elevate everything up to the point where it's that inner circle or that orthodoxy circle and there's things that are in the middle that are so critical and you want to put everything in that box, that's a mistake and you're falling into what Jesus is calling out here, which is this fact, okay, they're not with us, so they're against us, the disciples wanted to argue. John's saying, is that person really for us? Because they're not here with us. And so we try to use good discernment and realize, you know, what areas are truly, truly those who, that line up with God's word, and what are those areas that are more up in this where the arrow is pointing, they're really not important, or they're more speculation uh, issues. And this takes great discernment to, to do this. It's great, great, great discernment. You need to know scripture, and you need to be Berean and, and study scripture so that you can know exactly when those areas, when that line is crossed and when that's not. I'm not always going to be the one to give you the answer to that. And our elders may not always have exact answer for that, that, where that lies in every situation. And God can give you the wisdom as you dig in, because some of you have family members who are part of other maybe denominations or part of other groups, and you're trying to decide, okay, is that, is, are, they, are they like, are they Christian or are they not Christian? Is that, is that something that's outside of this or, or not? Here's what you need to do. You need to study Scripture. You need to learn your Bible, and you need to be discerning in these things. But I think what Jesus points out here in verse 41 is a very helpful place. Instead of starting with a place of suspicion, I think here's a good place to start is to appreciate anything that is done in the name of Jesus. Look at verse 41. For truly I say to you, what, uh, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Let me read that again. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, by no means lose his reward. So rather than starting at a point of like being critical or being, you know, looking for an argument or looking for a fight, if they're operating in the name of Jesus, maybe you begin by giving them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe some of you are aware of this, and maybe some of you are not. Some of you may not even know who this guy is on the right, Kanye West. Uh, Kanye West is a, uh, a, has been a secular artist and rapper and, you know, not a model of, for any person, how to live life, okay? I mean, the, the lyrics of his songs, the way that he conducts his life in the past, everything has been awful, and, 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 and it's terrible. But something recently has happened, and God has... According to him and his pastor, God has really gotten a hold of his heart. And all of a sudden, like he's had a, a, a total 180, like the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, what appears to be. And now he's putting out Christian music. He's hosting uh, crusades. 
he's aligned himself with a pastor who is actually a graduate of Master's Seminary, which is, if you know the name John MacArthur, John MacArthur's um, school. And so this guy is getting taught very good theology from the scriptures. And there's some really, appears to be some really good things happening. And his pastor here is even uh, kind of saying, hey, this guy appears to be really, really walking for Christ. But there's a lot of people out there who want to look at this way where this guy has been and who he is and instantly write him off and say, you know, it's, yeah, give it some time, give it, it's fake. We don't, and nobody, and some people just don't want to give him any benefit of the doubt whatsoever. And I think if we really follow Jesus' words here and the heart spirit behind it, we're, we're not going to jump off with a critical spirit every, every time something rubs us the wrong way or something happens that we just find it hard to believe. You know, that's what happened to the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul came to know Jesus on the road to Damascus, there were people who did not want to accept him into the group. They did not want him to be, they were like, this guy, man, he was killing and murdering and persecuting Christians. You know, let's don't bring him in here because obviously maybe he's got some hidden agenda. He's some speak, secret spy or something. And so they begin to think that there's other motivations behind this. And I think Jesus is telling us that a good place to start is just to appreciate anything that's done in his name. And then we use discernment. We'll talk about this in a minute. There's something called the perseverance of the saints. Over time, people will show their true colors. They're going to show whether they're really a Jesus follower, whether they're of Christ or not. Does their doctrine, does what they say, those essential things, do they line up with the word? Are they studying the word? Do they, are they learning the word? Are they memorizing the word? Because that's the authority, not just because they say something you like to hear, but is it lining up with scripture? And so I think the call is that we must be discerning Christians who know our Bibles and we can identify when we see things that is heresy, that's not right, and when we see things that appear to be lining up. And we're people of love and we're willing to give the benefit of the doubt until something proves otherwise. So do you have a critical spirit? Do Do you tend to look around even our own community, our own church, and you're picking people apart? And you're finding little flaws. I heard Francis Chan say in a sermon this week, he said, we live in a day and age where, you know, he was talking about himself. He's like, everything I say is, is recorded. Everything I say on stage or whatever, somebody's going to take one little word or phrase or bit I say. And if I don't get it exactly perfectly right according to, you know, the doctrine that I should believe in or the principles I should believe in, then people just run with this and blog about it and they talk about it and they're on radio and TV talking about it. And that's the day and age we live in. It's a hypercritical, hyperanalytical world where everything is dissected and, and, it's, and it's ridiculous because it can lead people to be adversaries instead of allies in our quest to give the gospel to every tongue, tribe, and nation. And, and so my call today isn't to Pastor John saying that all denominations are equal, or it's, I'm not saying that everybody's theology ultimately is the same. I'm saying it's your job, and talk about Martin Luther here for a second, uh, a big thing came out of the Reformation called the priesthood of the believer, right, Chip? The priesthood of the believer, meaning we don't need some person to tell us scripture. God gives us the Holy Spirit so we can open scripture and he begins to reveal truth to us. Now we study in community. If all of a sudden you pull out something out of your Bible that you're like, nobody has ever seen this before because I just found something so unique. Chances are you're way off the reservation because you have a community of Christians 
over the years who have discussed and, and, and pleaded with God and prayed over these texts, and there's been some sort of understanding that's been, uh, that has been arrived at, most likely. And so if you're out there somewhere on your own, uh, chances are that's not of the Holy Spirit. And so my encouragement to you is to be in your Bible. That's the best thing that can happen. That's the best thing that came out of the Reformation is we hold the Scripture in our hands and we can read and study it and we can learn and God can reveal truth to us. And so let's make sure that we're not overly critical. Let's make sure that even a cup of water given in the name of Jesus, we look at that with value. I mean, Jesus had just said, like these mighty works that these people are doing, all right? And, and then he jumps to the next thing he says is, giving a cup of water in Jesus' name. And so he says, don't stop these people who are doing these mighty works. But then he says, then look, somebody's doing something as simple as providing you a cup of water in the name of Jesus. They're being a, an ambassador for my name. That's not your enemy, that's your friend. Now clearly Jesus isn't meaning that all one has to do is give a cup of water to be in his kingdom. But what Jesus is saying is that he appreciates any time he is honored through an act of service. And so Jesus is saying, look, if you do something in my name, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you can do it all for God's glory. When Mitch and I were praying this morning, we were uh, praying, just God, help everything to be done in the service. And we were walking through not just the things that happened here, but even the, the chairs being set up in the morning, the deacons that were doing their jobs, that all these things have an opportunity to, to bring glory to God and things that are very seem very small are very significant in God's kingdom if they're done for God's glory. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, look, they're not, don't make war against each other. Don't make war against other believers. you got plenty of other things to be warring against, but these are not the things to be warned against. So remember the picture here. Jesus still has this small child on his lap, and he continues to teach his disciples that how you treat one another and he's not just talking about literal children here. I think this is figuratively for all believers, is how we should uh, treat those who come in the name of Jesus. So all those who come in the name of Jesus, we have to treat them the way that Jesus tells us to, to treat them. And not only does he say that, then he issues this very strong warning against those who would go to war against another believer. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, to sin, it would be better to, for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into a sea. That's a pretty stiff warning, right? I mean, go drown this guy if he's not willing to love and accept and appreciate someone who believes in me and you cause that person to stumble because of the, your attitude and the way that you're treating them or excluding them or judging them. And so, what, what I mean, Jesus would not have just thrown in this warning for nothing. This was a big deal for him. This was, this was major. And so the way we treat other believers in God's family really matters, right? Really, really matters. How, how, what you do to somebody in this church and how you treat somebody in this church matters because not only is that person a representation of Jesus in a very imperfect form but also it comes with a great warning that if you cause this person to stumble and sin you might as well be taken out put a big rock around your neck and throwing you into the sea and let you drown and so Jesus is making a very strong point here don't go to war 
with other believers over insignificant things. Don't go to war with other Christians over just because they don't dot their I and cross their T exactly like you do in some theological fine points that you may have. Let's be careful. I mean, I I see people, and and this probably a lot of people in the room don't really know what I'm talking about here, and that's okay. But I see people go to war over theological issues that aren't core issues, and they care more about those theological issues than they do Jesus. All right? I've seen people who want to, you're like, I'm about free will. I hate those predestination people. And you got these predestination people who are going, I hate you free will people. You don't understand the Bible. You're, you're, you're a bunch of, you, you need to grow up and learn some theology, you ignorant people. And there's this battle that goes on among these people over this issue. And it's like, where's Jesus in this? Like, really? You know? I mean, it's one of the reasons I remove myself from Facebook because it's ridiculous the number of people who fight and argue over things that are it's damaging to the kingdom, it's embarrassment to the kingdom because it's really not things that matter in the end. Yes, it, it, your theology matters, and I'm not trying to say that, but Jesus matters more. And, and, and you're pushed toward Jesus, and some of this stuff, and you push to the word, and you learn the word, you study the word, and a lot of these things will begin to, to, to even up. Because there's some things that just, that, that, that are paradoxes, so to speak, in Scripture, that it's hard to really put them together. How does this fit? How does this fit? Well, God knows how it fits. And I'm going to be humble in my approach. The, the word is a humble, let me give you a word here. A humble hermeneutic. That means uh, the way that you interpret the Bible. You're going to be humble and make sure that you're like, my way is the right way. If you don't believe in my way, hit the highway, right? That's not humility at all. So be humble. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples some really important things here. It's better to die in a terrible death than cause another Christian to sin. That must have been very, very shocking to those who heard him. So what have we got up to this point? Don't go to war against each other, disciples. Don't go to war against other people who hold true to my name and are truly believers in my name. That's not where you go to war at. Jesus is going to tell us, we're going to make war. Here's where you need to make war. And the war is on the turf of your heart, mostly. It's on the turf of your heart. Look at verse 43 through through 48. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than have two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter eternal life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. All right, so two big topics here that we need to deal with. The first one is our war on sin, and then Jesus' warning about hell. Today's Family Worship Sunday. Parents, listen to me carefully. You may need to continue this conversation at home. You probably do, because a lot of times when hell is addressed, it can really, really cause kids to, to, to have a great deal of fear. Now, some fear may be healthy in this situation. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we've got to make sure that it's handled wisely and properly. And all of our staff, our elders, would be more than eager to sit down with you and your kids to help in this conversation if you need us to do that. 
So let's talk about the war against sin first. J.C. Ryer says this. He says, true Christianity is a struggle, a fight, and a warfare. Where there is grace, there will be conflict. The believer is a soldier. There is no holiness without a warfare. Saved souls will always be found to have fought a fight. So, there is a fight here, clearly. Christians struggle with sin in this life because we're still sinners. We're saved by grace, but we're still sinners. And the presence of sin in us will not be will not be eradicated until the day that we stand before God. And what a great day that will be, right? To be able to stand before God and no longer have those battle and that fight with sin. If you're a true believer in here and you're battling with sin, you know what I'm talking about. If you're a, a, a carnal Christian or an immature Christian, you probably don't know what I'm talking about because you're really not battling with sin. But the more that you know of Scripture and the more that you are in God's Word, the greater the battle will be because you see more and more where you fall short on your own and you crave for the Holy Spirit to, to take over more and more of your life. And here's the thing that you need to remember. This battle, this war against sin is a good thing and it's something that provides us assurance in our Christian life. I don't have time to read all of these verses. I encourage you to go to 2 Peter 1.9. I'm pretty sure I put it in the app if you're following on the app. Uh, you can just click there and read that verse. But what we see from that is if you're not adding to your faith, you'll forget that you've been redeemed from your sins in the first place. This lack of enthusiasm for holiness and an unwillingness to go to war against your sin will result in you not being sure of your salvation. That if you think that you can just live a careless life and still know and, and still have this, I know I'm going to heaven, I, you know, I'm just right now I'm just going to live this way or embrace this sin or, and, and not go to war against these sins, you may be a Christian, but you won't know that you're a Christian according to Scripture. And I won't recap everything that Chip said so great up here about the gospel, that, that, that this is not work salvation. This is not, you need to, okay, Jesus did this, now I'm going to add to all that. It's if, in the vein of Martin Luther, who we've been talking about this morning, Martin Luther said this, he said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, meaning that, it's not our works, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's not our works. It's not Jesus saves us and now try hard and do all the right things, be in church, do the good stuff, be nice to the poor, treat your, treat your family well and treat the, uh, the, your neighbors well, and then maybe you'll get in at the end. That's not the gospel. The gospel is it's all Jesus and what he did. We look to the cross. We put our faith in him. And he gives us not only forgiveness of our sins, he gives us the very righteousness of Jesus. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 says so well. It says, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You were under God's wrath. But then it says, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so it's all grace. It's, it's not what we do. It's, it's not salvation by faith plus my works plus my merit plus this or that. It's only what Jesus did. But as Martin Luther pointed out, but the, the, the essence, the character, the nature of this faith that brings us to salvation, is a, it, it, it wants to do what Jesus wants us to do. It hears the words 
of Christ, and we're motivated to respond to those because we have real faith in us. God has gifted us with the gift of faith. And because of that, we know that we will fight this battle. And so true, genuine, saving faith is more than just intellectually assenting to Jesus came to earth and he died and he died for my sins, he rose again. I believe that, yeah, that's, I believe that. It's more than that. It involves our will. True saving faith always progressively produces holiness in our lives. It's going to cause us to be more and more like Christ over time. And so until we see this fact that there is this war, I don't think we understand the call of what Jesus is saying here. And this sin is going to leave us broken. It's going to leave us desperate. It's going to cause us to, to be weak and in, our, in our life. And until we go to war with it, not only do we not have victory over that sin, but we won't have assurance of our salvation. So we go to war against um, our, our sin. Sorry. All right, and so uh, it produces, true genuine faith produces holiness. And now look at verse 43. He says, what's he talking about here when he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. What in the world is Jesus talking about there? Is he talking about self-mutilation? What's he, what's he referring to? Clearly, this is hyperbole, all right, the, that he's not literally saying this. Why do I say that? Because the Bible clearly forbids mutilation we're not to mutilate our bodies and also back in chapter 7 and throughout the new testament it talks about how that sin is a result of the heart it's not a result of necessarily your actions it, it, it comes out through your actions but it's motivated by our heart sin comes from the heart but I, I want us to be careful here that we don't diminish or negate what jesus is saying just because it is hyperbole that he he's you know all oh, he doesn't really literally mean to do that for us to do that he doesn't really mean what he's saying here look the truth is things we value supremely like our eyes like our hands like our feet what jesus is saying these should never stand in the way of eternal life whatever in our lives makes us stumble and causes others to stumble must be removed so he's saying i want you to go to whatever lengths possible to be killing the sin in your life. If you're sinning, your sight, what you see, where you go, what you do, if you're sinning, Jesus says, go to war drastically with these sins. Make war on your sin. And that's, man, that's some, a stern warning for us. And then he adds to this, the warning of hell on top of this. He says, Look, it's better to go into hell with one eye than two eyes. Or it's better to go to heaven with one eye than go to hell with two eyes. What, what an incredible, incredible statement. And, and, and sometimes I think people look at this passage about hell and these words about hell, and they're like, wow, is, is Jesus really serious about that hell is this eternal fire and hell is this place where the worm dies not isn't it just like figurative language isn't that jesus just you know he's again he's just talking about things that maybe you know that literally aren't like that well here's the thing just like i pointed out about the hands and the feet while he may not have been referring to literally there what do you do when you when you're trying to make a point of something and you use figurative language to describe that is the figurative language going to be as strong as the reality of it Right? I mean, if you say, wow, that was like this, 
what are you saying? You're saying, I'm going to give you the best words I can here to describe the reality of that thing over there. And while it is no fun at all to talk about hell, and it brings much discomfort for us, the truth is we have to wrestle with the reality of it. Jesus talked about it more than anyone else in the New Testament. And so whether you want to maybe find some comfort in the fact that, oh, well, maybe it's not a little fire, maybe it's not, you know, little this or that, the truth is it's horrible and it's way worse than those words even describe if it's not the literal thing. And so we don't hide behind the possibility, oh, maybe it's not that, that that's severe. Hell is a reality. And we don't like to talk about it. But Jesus talks about it. Eternal separation from all goodness for eternity. R.C. Sproul said this. I thought this was great. I never really thought about it this way. He said, it's common to say that hell is the absence of God. Such statements are motivated in large part by the dread of even contemplating what hell is like. We try often to soften the blow and find a euphemism that skirts around it. We need to realize that those who are in hell desire nothing more than the absence of God. They don't want to be in God's presence. They didn't want to in their earthly lives, and they certainly don't want to be near him in hell. The worst thing about hell is the presence of God. That's pretty powerful. No hope, no common grace, no good, the constant eternal wrath of God upon us. Well, it's not literal. It's not literal. Who cares? It's way worse if it's not literal. The wrath of God upon you for eternity. Day after day, no hope, no goodness, no grace. That's heavy. And like I said, parents, you may want to have that talk with your kids. Here's the thing that I've struggled with over the years, and I think I've arrived at a, a fairly good, wise place. What should be the role of hell in our motivation to see people saved? Because we know, I did, man, when I came to Jesus, hell was the number one motivating factor, right? I mean, I did not want to go to hell, and so that's why I came to Christ. But if you think about it, I mean, we have a lot of reasons why people come to Jesus. Some people, they come to church, they get part of the church body, and they say, man, these people are incredible. I love what, what's happening here, the love among people. And, and then they become a Christian out of that motivate, help motivate them. Or maybe you grew up in a Christian family, and like your, your family always just taught you about Jesus. And when you got to that age where you started to figure it out for yourself, you're like, man, I want to be part of what my family's about. I, I want to be, you know, and so your family motivated you. Maybe you came from a, a horrible, terrible background of just sin and a life of debauchery and just doing horrible, awful stuff for years and years and years. And then when you heard that salvation is God's gift to you and that you don't have to carry that guilt anymore, that God makes you a new person, you're no longer who you were, that you're new in Jesus. And that motivated you, said, man, I, I can be free of all that guilt from my past. And I can turn to Jesus. Amazing. And so 
you see, we're motivated by a lot of things. But here's the deal with, with hell and everything else. We can be motivated to come to Jesus by the fear of hell, and that may be a good thing, provided that when we come to Jesus, we want Jesus. When we come to Jesus, we actually want Jesus. And so I don't think that just coming to Jesus for the gifts he gives, but not wanting Jesus himself, is really salvation. And so I think parents, as we frame this up for our kids, we help them see that, yes, avoiding hell is, is a very good motivation, but what you're running to is, is, is so wonderful and so awesome and so amazing because you're running to Jesus Christ. But let's be honest here for a minute. If you tell your kids, Jesus is so much better, but your life isn't reflecting any kind of pursuit of Jesus, truthfully, at all, what are they going to, they're going to believe that? They're going to be like, uh, well, not really seeing much of that happening in our family. Don't really see us talking about this. Is it really better? So parents, the challenge for us is, if we're going to say, run to Jesus, because he's so awesome, and he's, he, he, that's what we're running to, we're running to our Savior, then we better be living that out and pursuing Jesus and seeking him and trusting him day in and day out, killing our sin, not going home and turning the conversation immediately to, oh, did you see that today? Did you see what he was wearing? Or did you see what she did? Or did you see that happen? And we begin to critique and war on the body of Christ. Or you drive by the other church and you're like, oh, yeah, those, those people now, they're not, they're not part of us. They're, they're, they're kind of strange over there, that church. And we begin to war on them. And we're missing the very war that we should be fighting, which is in our own heart. The war of bitterness and anger, the bitter, the, of un, being unloving in our spirit, critical spirit. And Jesus says, look, deal with your sin. War against your sin. Because those who truly know me and those who truly have faith will war. You will make war against your sin. And then verse 49. I don't have time to really break down all the opinions for what this verse may mean because this is kind of a cryptic verse. But for anyone, I'm, or I'm sorry, for everyone will be salted with fire. I'm just going to tell you what I think. Feel free to look into this yourself come up with a different opinion there's every different commentary I read had a different opinion on it I think the point appears to be that everyone must face one mode of salting with fire or the other either you're willing to be tested in this life through suffering and going to war against your sin or you'll be salted with fire in the next life you'll be God will turn you over to hell for eternity you know, I, I don't think it takes much sense to really realize which one would I rather do. I'd rather war and suffer some in this life and see Jesus at the end of this life than to have all the pleasure and the goodness of this life and then be salted with fire in the next. Wouldn't you? Didn't that, didn't that seem like an easy, easy decision to make? And so I think that's what he's getting at. And he says, Verse 50, salt, which is a preservative, very important preservative at that time, 
He says, salt is good. And you remember on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his disciples, you're the salt of the earth. You're the preservative of the earth. And he says, uh, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltness, which is probably an impossibility because salt doesn't lose its saltness. So what's he saying? He says, how will you make it salty again? Have salt within yourselves. Well, I think what he's saying is he, he's continued this call for radical obedience. He's like, be who you are. You're salt. You're goodness. You bring, you preserve. You bring the good to this world. You bring Jesus to this world. And so be who you are. Pursue righteousness. Pursue holiness. And then he finishes it off kind of where they started. And be at peace with one another. In light of this disciples' arguments and John's opposition, Jesus brought this one simple point home. Be at peace with one another. Be humble. Don't war against your others. Don't war against the other people who are speaking in my name. Don't cause other people to stumble and fall. Don't war and fight over position and status. Spend your energy in a war that matters. A war that's being fought on the turf of your heart. A war to make God the king of your life. So go back to the question that I started with from the beginning. So Emerson can answer this question, right, when when you're asked it later, right? Is it war or is it peace? Which one is it? Here's what the scripture shows me, that ironically, the war is to strive for rest or peace in Jesus, in Jesus alone. It's both. But we make sure we're striving in the right place. We strive for rest. We strive for peace in Jesus and Jesus alone. You see, if you don't see, if you don't recognize Jesus as being all sufficient for what you need for salvation, there will be the striving to measure up, to try to be good enough, to try to get in. But we strive to rest in Jesus. Jesus, you're my only hope. You're my righteousness. You're everything. And you see why you begin to fall more and more in love with Jesus and less in love with yourself? And you see that the motivation primarily is Jesus because Jesus, as the song says, paid it all. All to him I owe. He did it all for us. And so we pursue him, and in that pursuit, we find the ultimate joy. And so the striving, the narrow road, the hard work, the world, the warfare is not a striving to get Jesus to earn, to earn salvation. It's precisely to rest in Jesus. And that's peace. And then on top of that, what an awesome truth this is. Peace comes from knowing that God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Jesus has given you the desire and the power. It's kind of what Paul said. He said, you know, I work with all my might, but not me working, but God that works in me. It's, it's, a, it's that irony. It seems like they're not compatible. I'm working, but it's God is the one that's working through me. And so the work, my labor, my work, ultimately is a work for rest. It's a work for peace in Jesus Christ. And so if, if you're following Jesus, if you're here today out of fear, you're missing the gospel. You're missing grace. Jesus says, pursue me. 
come after me. And you'll find that rest for your soul. Please, hear me. If you're here today and you still think that salvation is about your effort, your work, what you contribute, you're missing it. And you're living out of fear and you're not working for rest. And Christian in here, if you think, okay, I get the saved by grace through faith thing, but now it's me. Like now I got to do it all, right? I do it all. You're missing the point too. It's God who works in you, gives you both the desire and the power to be killing that sin in your life. And I tell the guys I meet with Fight Club all the time, you know, if we're trying to do this and we're not spending time with our Savior, we're not spending time with Jesus, you're going you're to be a failure. You're going to fall. You're going to be struggling. You're going to be demoralized all the time because he's your power source. It's, it's getting in the word and getting to know him and talking to him and getting to see more of him come through you. That's where you have the power to fight this war. And so, so many Christians, you're like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm going to try harder this week. Yet, maybe you start Monday or, and Tuesday spending time with your Savior. But by Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you're right back in the old pattern. And, it, and, and you can't have any victory, you can't have any rest when you're not spending time with the person you love. I finished with this. They did a survey some years ago, and they asked people who claimed to be Christians. They said, if you could go to heaven after you die, except Jesus, go to heaven after you die, but Jesus wouldn't be there, would that be okay with you? And the vast majority said yes, as long as I go to heaven. And, and, and see, we've missed the point in the way we, we frame this up, that there is no heaven without Jesus. In the next life and in this life, you won't experience the joy and the living for Jesus and the power unless you are with Jesus. And so the application of this isn't to be afraid or fearful. It's keeping your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, suffering the shame. And that's the same thing for us. We look at the cross, we look at Jesus, and we war, and we endure for joy. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your truth. Thank you for the kids in here today who really hung in and listened, paid attention, God. I pray for parents as we discuss later probably this difficult topic of hell and your wrath and how that um, sin requires that your justice punish it. And, and God, I pray that you'll give wisdom to our parents as how, how they discuss that and how they deal with that. God, I pray that you will help us adults to make our lives about you 100% of the time, seven days a week. God, I pray that we'll count the cost. And for those in here who are asking right now, is it worth it? I pray you'll help them to see your words and to see your truth and see the warnings that you gave. And God, I pray that you will draw them by your grace and by your goodness to the cross today. 